Thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. And I'm Karim Khan, the outgoing editor of BJSM. It's a great pleasure to be with Professor Margot Mountjoy, who's been on previous BJSM podcasts as a very popular guest, and I'm very grateful that you're with us today, Margot. Today we're going to talk about mental health as a very, very topical issue in sport and exercise and there's no one better to be on this topic than you because of your work with the IOC Mental Health Working Group, among other things. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. A pleasure. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to speak on, a, on this topic, which is near and dear to my heart. Let's launch with the IOC's efforts by pulling together a expert group which compiled a couple of issues of BJSM, including a really important consensus statement, which were issues 11 and 12 in 2019. But you're going to translate all that hard work for our listeners in the next 15 minutes. So why don't you begin by giving the listener the overview and then launching into what do you think the role of the listening clinician can be with athlete mental health? Very interesting, I think, to start with is why are we even doing this? And what happened in the most recent IOC Athletes Forum, we had about a 1,000 athletes from around the world uh, together in Lausanne, and various topics were discussed with these athletes. And one topic that received significant interest was mental health. The discussions were very vibrant, the athletes were very engaged, and when they ranked the different sessions, it was the number one session, of course, next to to, uh, Thomas Bach's address. So the message came loud and clear from the athletes that they were interested in learning more about this, having more support in the area of mental health, and getting some guidance and help from the IOC. And that's what stimulated the IOC to support the project of mental health, which started, as you mentioned, with the consensus statement. Since then, of course, there were several support papers in those same editions, uh, as well as the consensus. And following the consensus, the IOC struck this working group, which is really a knowledge translation group. And our role is in this consensus, in this knowledge translation group, is to take the consensus statement and activate it, make it into tools and things that people can actually use and implement to translate the science into action. Should we begin by defining mental health and what athletes understand and what our listeners should be thinking about? Yes, it's a very good place to start. And in the consensus paper, we've actually defined this quite clearly. And we've made a distinction between mental health symptoms and mental health disorders. Now, mental health symptoms are something that I think are quite common in athletes, and we know this from some of the supportive papers, that feelings of anxiety, being nervous, having some obsessive-compulsive behaviors, feeling a bit down if your performance is not uh, up to par, are fairly common in elite sport. Now, in contrast to that are mental health disorders. And mental health disorders are actually clinically diagnosed illnesses according to a statistical diagnostic statistical manual, which is a psychiatry uh, compendium of how we diagnose. So these would be things like clinical depression, clinical anxiety, um, bipolar disorders, psychosis. So that's a very you know, different end of the spectrum, symptoms versus disorders. And let's make this very practical, which is why people like BJSM podcasts. What can the listener do? What should he or she think about? Well, I think it's very important that each and every one of us has an important role to play in this space. So I'd like you to take this opportunity while you're listening today to think about what I'm discussing and how you might apply this or where you can actually take this information and and take it to your daily care with athletes. Whether you be a physio or a physician or some other sports science person, what, what would your role be? 
And I'd like you to think, think of it from the start. You are there in sport, working with athletes to look after the entire athlete as a human being. We have been trained very well on how to manage knees, on how to manage shoulder issues, on how to manage performance issues. But we haven't necessarily had a lot of experience or training on how to look at the holistic approach to the athlete where we consider their mental health and mental well-being as part of their overall health and performance strategy. So as a clinician working with athletes, there's many things you can do. The first one, and I think one that's very important, is to have a keen role on decreasing the stigma for access for athletes to mental health. There's this stigma out there that having mental health symptoms makes you weak. There's a stigma that elite athletes are supposed to be the best at everything, and therefore, if they have any symptoms, they're not as good as they should be. So having the conversations, making sure you normalize uh, the, that people have these symptoms, and opening the door to conversation. So if you're working with someone that seems to be a little off, a little not themselves or, or not performing, just even saying, you know, you don't seem yourself today, is there something up? Or even saying, you know, others have come to me to talk about their anxiety around performance, and if you ever have something like that, I'm the person you can come and talk to. So just opening the door, giving them permission to talk about it, and being cognizant that you're watching and seeing what's happening beyond the joint or the tendon. My second point is around education. We are, as, as uh, clinicians, often educating coaches. We're educating other um, members of the um, support team around health issues, nutrition, etc. But we can also play a role in educating about mental health. Again, it will also help to decrease stigma but also we can increase the competence of everyone in the, the support team on how to recognize an athlete in distress and how to ask them to seek for help. So education is a clear role that we should be doing for the members of our team as well as for athletes and coaches. In addition, we must educate ourselves, which is bringing me to point three. We should all have the clinical competence to be able to recognize, screen, diagnose, initially manage, and know when to refer uh, issues of mental health. So that clinical competence you can gain by reading these articles that are in uh, number 11 and 12 editions uh, in 2019, because there's a lot of good practical hints on both screening, diagnosing, and treating these disorders. The next thing as a clinician, and this is very important to me in my clinical practice, is that I like to make sure I have on my team, we have good physios, we have good masseuse, I want to have a good mental health support worker that's part of our team that's involved at every step of the way. So do you have someone that you're competent, comfortable with, who is competent to manage mental health disorders and or disabling mental health symptoms. So that might be a sports psychologist, it might be a sports psychiatrist, it might be a mental performance coach. So who is on your support team that you can call when you need that kind of help? Now the question is when do you need that kind of help? So I think it's important that we should be screening our athletes early in season, mid-season. Uh, at the usual times, you'd be screening for physical problems. And I encourage you that when you screen for physical issues in your periodic health exam, that you include mental health screening in that regime. Now, 
in addition to this, if there's been a significant event in that athlete's uh, training, such as a significant injury, or a decrease or change in performance, or a change of their position, say they've not made a team, or they've had a career end, these are significant times in their career that should, should trigger you to do a mental health screen and just check in with them and make sure they're okay because those significant periods of change in some athletes can trigger mental health symptoms and or disorders. Now the final area that I think that we um, in the BGSM listeners who are involved in science as well as clinical space is that we should be taking up the need to fill the huge gap of lack of research in this area. We do have some good underpinning research. You will read about it in the consensus statements and supporting papers. But we also identify in these papers several research gaps that require attention. We do not know a lot about some of the treatments. We do not know a lot of the prevalence in different areas. And as you can see outlined in the, in the consensus statement, there are areas needing attention. And, and really, I'd like to encourage those researchers out there that are looking for something meaningful and important that needs to be done, that there's work to be done in this space. And Margo, before we jump into those tools, which you're going to share, in a clinical scenario that you can think of in your practice, is the treatment often pharmacological or is it counselling? What is the general mainstay when you're mentioning treatment in your mind briefly before we move on? Certainly there's many different aspects to treatment and of course that must be tailored to what you're finding clinically but there are many things that you can do and some of them are brief psychotherapy, uh, some of them are initial pharmacotherapy and certainly in the more complex situations where either there's diagnostic uncertainty, clinical competence where you've got comorbidities or you've got um, difficult resistant non-responders to treatment, that's when I call my favorite sports psychiatrist for help because that's beyond my capacity, uh, clinical capacity as a sport medicine physician, primary care sport medicine to handle. So having that expertise of someone who's an expert in mental health uh, is very helpful. And on the... For the listener who is in a remote area, doesn't have access, you're at a major national university, how do they access someone like a friendly sports psychiatrist? That's a very good point because not everyone has the uh, expertise. But I think you might find that there's actually a lot of sports psychiatrists that will do remote care now through video conferencing. And in fact, uh, there is, um, if you can just Google sports psychiatry in your country, or you will probably find a resource of sports psychiatrists that will do video conferencing to athletes in remote areas that need support. And that's something we can all work on in terms of building that community and BJSM is open to the sports psychiatry community and we've published papers by them and you have been a leader in bringing them to us, Margo. So let's move on to those tips that you've got, the practical tools that came out of the IOC consensus meeting for clinicians. Yes, there are several tools that this Knowledge Translation Group are working on and you can find some of them at the Olympic website called Athlete365. This is a free website. You do have to log in. But there are several tools for athletes here, athletes and coaches. And I think this is, for me, a very useful tool because it, it addresses the stigma and the education. They're very athlete-friendly. There's athletes that are speaking in them, and the messaging is very clear and very appropriate. Another good tool is the NC2A program. They have a large mental health program, and it's all accessible online as well. And this is a nice resource for folks to access. Uh, 
And finally, I'd like you to watch this space because our group that's with the IOC um, Mental Health Support Group is actually developing some new tools that we will be uh, publishing in the BGSM and online on olympic.org for you to use free of charge. So stay tuned. More to come as we get our work accomplished. Of course, your previous podcasts were about harassment and abuse, and that's not distant from what you're talking about today. It certainly isn't distant. In fact, that was really my role on the IOC Mental Health Working Group was to bring in the harassment and abuse piece. And I encourage every one of you, when you're working with athletes that are presenting with either anxiety, depression, substance abuse issues, sleep disturbance, or eating disorders, whatever they're presenting with, please, in your thorough history, when you're going through your history, clinical history with that athlete, of course, you'll be asking about family history and, and, and et cetera, please don't forget to ask, have they ever experienced harassment and abuse in the course of sport or outside of sport? Because often harassment and abuse presents as mental health signs and symptoms and leading to mental health disorders. So please don't forget that in your complete history to ask about that piece as perhaps a potential impetus for the mental health symptoms that you're seeing in the clinic. And with your vast experience, how do you ask that? It's, it's, it seems awkward for me to know how to ask. Yes, that's often what I hear from clinicians. I get it, it's important, but I don't know how to approach the topic. So just a little hint that I've used many times and, and it has often worked is to just say to, say to the athlete, you know, I've seen others in this situation here with me that presents with a similar kind of symptoms, and you can list which symptoms they mentioned to you, that have told me that these symptoms are stem from someone that's been hurting them or harming them in any way. And I uh, just wondered if that's been your experience. Has anything happened within sport or outside of sport that's troubling you that uh, may be contributing to what your behaviors are or what you're feeling today? And sometimes that's just opening the door for them. It's giving them permission. It's also telling them that you're safe and okay to talk to. And you may follow that up by saying, you know, you can talk to me. It's confidential uh, what you're saying to me today. And uh, I will help you. I can help you and I will stop what's happening to make you feel better. And I've heard you mention this to me before, Margot, in a team context, you bring these things up in your pre-season conversations, in your education, it's not like you'd bring this up on day one of the injury. Correct. It's something that an ongoing dialogue really is the most important, and it's about relationship building. If that athlete does not have you or have a relationship with you, you're not likely going to hear from them. So having those conversations, having them regularly, uh, leaving your door open for permission, and having your space in the clinic, a safe space where confidentiality is maintained, will go a long way. And in fact, we do know the victims of harassment abuse, it takes them often years to actually disclose. So having that long-term relationship and the ability for them to know that you're safe will pay off in the long run. Thank you so much, Margot, for that very candid and hugely practical insight for our BJSM listeners. Thanks for joining this BJSM podcast and please share it with your friends if you like it. I hope you get the chance to have a physically active day. 